Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, here to stand with you against autonomous technologies, runaway markets, and weaponized media that threaten human cognition, solidarity, and survival. It's time to play together. This is Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, Inspiral members Susan Basterfield and Anthony Cabral. We don't need to know all the answers in order to do something. And we know that what we need to do is structurally different. We look at the people, to the person to the right and the left of us, and kind of jump into that breach together and try to do something that we don't quite know how to do yet. Susan and Anthony are going to share the open secrets of bottom-up collaboration as we celebrate the publication of Inspiral's book, Better Work Together. It's time to intervene on behalf of humans. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you are on Team Human. I've been publishing a lot on Medium lately. I've actually now got a column there that roughly corresponds to the monologues that I'm doing at the opening of the show. Uh, Sometimes I'll write the piece first and then base a monologue on that. And sometimes I just do the monologue and then uh, expand on those ideas in a piece. So they're they're fun to look at, as well as uh, other features and things I've been writing there. You can find them at uh, medium.com slash at Rushkoff. You can find uh, eventually all the Team Human episodes right on Medium for easy playing. And um, it's a fun place to write. They're really working on creating a sustainable writing ecosystem. And uh, I'm hoping that it uh, can stay a, a good writing home for me for uh, for some time into the future. I've been getting easily a hundred emails a day from people with great ideas for social change, for new democratic platforms, for eco-villages, alternative currencies. Some of them have written eloquent white papers or created these gorgeous renderings and plotted out 
cyclic revenue streams that seem to challenge the laws of perpetual motion. And they're well-meaning people with great education, great skills, turning their attention to what, what we're calling the most wicked problems of our age. Yet, Almost all of these ingenious blueprints for the salvation of humanity itself have been conceived or generated alone in a room on a computer. And yes, these folks, they're emailing me or calling because they want to find the others now. They want to find the people and the organizations who share the same fundamental values and who will recognize the wisdom of these master plans and then just incorporate them into their own visions for the future. But no matter who I try to connect them to, it never quite works out. And that's Sadly, I think it's because they're reaching out to the other people much, much too late in their process. What I've learned studying and hoping to support the efforts of a group in New Zealand, it's a group of collective enterprises called Inspiral, is that solidarity is not the result of world-changingly good plans, but it's the cause of them. There's no paucity of solutions to our collective woes, from permaculture and the commons to consensus building and platform cooperatives. But what we too often lack are the communities of people to organize and apply these solutions in the real world from the bottom up. And it really doesn't have to be this way. The, the Occupy movement has long been criticized as lacking substance or purpose, as if it was just some bunch of idealistic college kids and dropouts with great motives but no plan. But to me, this was precisely their strength. They had a willingness to gather together with no particular expectation other than to forge solidarity and model a new approach to social change. So it was less some demand or an eschatological goal than a process. It was a new normative state, a new way of, and I wrote a piece about this once, a new way of occupying reality. And this may not have been Adbuster's original intent when they first called for a protest against Wall Street, but it's simply what happened when people came together with a determination to engage in the long game of social change, one collaborative step at a time. So no, Occupy maybe didn't achieve some landmark concession from the government or the corporate sector. But it set in motion a new approach to collective action, to, to governance, to trade. Or maybe it just retrieved some really old, long, lost approaches, like the General Assembly from ancient Greece or the commons of pre-industrial Europe. But these mechanisms, they weren't a part of some master plan, but they emerged in response to the needs of people engaging differently in real time. And the needs of the people in the park changed. So then different experts rushed into the scene to provide food solutions or technology solutions, Wi-Fi. Each solution was generated from the bottom up 
in an occasionally ad hoc way, but, but always organic way. And in Spiral, well, they may have predated Occupy by a year or so, but it arose in the same way and for some of the same reasons and asking similar questions. How can a business or an organization or society itself work without bosses? How can a group take everyone's opinion into account and still get anything done? How can a company make money for its stakeholders without extracting needed funds from somewhere or something else? And the collective solutions, you know, they're, they're now thriving initiatives. You know, they're chronicled in a new book. Uh, it's called Better Work Together. And they were as much responses to the collective's own challenges as they were, you know, bright ideas, you know, universal solutions for the world. They weren't even meant as that. They, they came up with Lumio, which is a consensus tool modeled on the Occupy Movement's General Assembly meeting style, and it helps groups agree on difficult issues. And instead of promoting winner-takes-all polarizing outcomes, like the outcomes of traditional debate and elections, it seeks to minimize total discomfort with group choices. And yes, solving this problem for themselves gave Inspiral a tool that was applicable far and wide, as, as the Podemos movement in Spain or local government uh, debates in, in the United Kingdom. You know, likewise, uh, Inspiral has something called the Experience Agency, and it organizes and facilitates events and retreats, but only because its founders needed to develop this expertise to facilitate their own meetings and workshops on open source. So the efforts grow, but they don't really scale in the way that Silicon Valley thinks of growth. It's, it's not the one-size-fits-all industrial-age solutions that are now being distributed through digital networks. It's initiatives that spread because they're techniques that can be modeled by others and then adapted to particular circumstances. Oh, hey, I tried this. Oh, yeah, we could try that too. But they're, they're, they're not products, but they're processes. They're less, less services, really, than, than offerings. And as I see it, the, the problems engendered by these monolithic solutions of industrial capitalism, they're not countered by more big solutions, but by many different local responses. And Inspiral's methodologies are more fundamental in that sense than any fully realized rendering of an eco-village or a white paper for some other blockchain solution to global poverty. Like the service offered by Inspiral's companies, they're not answers to your challenges so much as recipes for finding and developing your own. The work itself, the process of collaboration, ends up as important as whatever product or service that's ultimately being delivered. It's less some final solution that can be thought up, written down, and emailed to the world than it is a simple commitment to engaging honestly, openly, and transparently from the beginning. At that point, the objective isn't to win an argument, but to get to a place where their discussion itself generates novel solutions or even compromises. In the wake, as we are, of one of the most contentious elections in U.S. history, we can take a lesson from Inspiral's retrieval of true democratic principles. 
The object of deliberation is not to generate consensus, but to enlist consent. There's a difference. Not every member of a community is going to get what they want. No proposal is perfect. So instead of making a proposition and arguing that it's the best possible solution to our problems, we can instead say, I want to try something. Does anyone think it will do harm? The attitude shifts toward personal agency over unity, towards small, iterative changes over large-scale renovations. It's not about whether everyone loves it. It's about whether everyone can tolerate it. It may be harder to get everyone on board the idea of mere tolerance when they've got victory in mind. But the sooner we realize that winning just sucks when the others must lose, the sooner we'll break free of the maddening pendulum swings of winner-takes-all competition and the less totalizing our solutions will have to be. I'm Richard D. Bartlett, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Ramesh Srinivasan, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Sylvia Zia, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Pia Mangini from Open Collective, and I'm on Team Human. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Media Squad home to the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College. I'm delighted to have two core members of Inspiral on Team Human today, Susan Basterfield and Anthony Cabral. It could take a while to explain exactly what Inspiral is and does, and that's part of why I dedicated the monologue today to emphasizing the power of process-based learning and execution. They're basically a group of companies in New Zealand and a foundation attempting to demonstrate the power of working together. Their new book, Better Work Together, is a collection of real stories and tested tools from the front line of the future of working together. So to start, hi. Thanks, both of you, uh, for for being on Team Human. You're, uh, I know you're all kind of members of Team Human, but you're also, uh, uh, in in large part, the inspiration for even um, thinking that something like Team Human uh, is is possible. Um, I thought, for those who aren't familiar with uh, uh, Inspiral, that it might be a, a good idea to talk about uh, sort of Inspiral's origins and each of your you know, each of your stories. Um, I'm interested in knowing kind of what made each of you ready for uh, engaging in something like Inspiral and, you know, what, what attracted you to just this whole mission? Just, yeah, that's an that's a interesting question to start with. It's great. So um, the origins of Inspiral, really, the kernel of the idea, I would say, was when Joshua Vile um, turned his personal consulting company into a effectively a, a non-hierarchical cooperative where everyone in the around him had the opportunity to set their own wages or set their own consulting rates and work completely autonomously as an owner uh, with the intention that if he could liberate more people from working in nine to five industrialized hours that they would be able to work more flexibly and work together on projects that they really cared about. And at a meta scale, it was like, how can we 
support more people to be able to spend more of their professional output solving the things that they really care about and the world really needs. And then that sort of kernel of an idea grew and grew and grew as various different people showed up. Um, I myself showed up probably about 18 months into the project in, in 2000 and 2012 um, after 18 months of traveling through Asia and having a quarter-life crisis that I didn't want to work in advertising anymore and the world was screwed and I didn't want to like fan the flames of consumerism and had to find a better way to use my brain and sort of showed up to Wellington, New Zealand and found this group of people. Uh, Wellington's really small so you go to a few meetups and it's not long before you see the same faces and you, you follow the threads and all of a sudden you're in this strange co-working space talking about self-governing autonomous collectives. Um, so it was sort of like a, a rush of folks that all showed up mid-2012 from different backgrounds, accountants and lawyers and um, marketing folk like myself um, to join what was kind of a stable core of more technology-orientated people. And then at that point, people started showing up with their own startups as well, saying, hey, we've heard about Inspiral. You guys are like doing something interesting. We want to we wanna join in. Um, and that was when folks like Lumio showed up when they were just more or less a group of activists from Occupy with an idea to make a consensus app. And their initial question was, can you build us the app? And, <coughs> and the answer was, no, but we can help you build the app. And so it's sort of from there the community grew. And I think the thing that took us by surprise is like a couple of years later, folks like Susan showed up. Yeah. What was a, I'm also, what was a folks like Susan at that time? I'm not sure there were any folks ex that, that exactly had the Susan shape like me. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not the, the what at that time was the typical Inspiralite. So I spent, I like to call myself a slow learner. I spent almost 25 years in senior leadership positions in big multinationals, like the biggest, like IBM and Vodafone and British Petroleum. Wow. Working uh, to try what I, I didn't have the language for it back then. I guess the language now is uh, as an entrepreneur trying to have uh, influence of uh, being more human over the thin sashimi slice of the silo that I had influence over. And yeah, I'd create great experiences, I think, and, you know, say this with all humility for the people that I, um, you know, could, could gather in together. But once that bumped up against the instantiated hierarchies, and even with, you know, some of my peers and, and people on the exec looking at us as, oh, okay, they're shiny, they're doing something different, their engagement scores are better than the rest of the organization, what's happening there? You know, that works for a while until the mirror kind of turns in on them and they uh, recognize that the only way that they'll be able to uh, have the same experience is if they are willing to, um, you know, maybe go on their own personal journey of, of discovery and self-development. Right. And then uh, what? They usually have an immune response against that, I guess. Oh, yeah. Bullying, but pulling, pulling budgets, uh, you know, yelling, all, you know, all, all of those kind of typical behaviors that um, we think about when we think about um, trying to make changes in big corporate environments. But, you know, I'd, uh, I'd arrived in Wellington in 2012 um, after the Christchurch earthquakes, and I'd known about Inspiral. You know, I'd, I'd, I was fascinated by this group of young people in a co-working space that weren't all coders with their headphones on. Um, they were really had, you know, even in the very early days, started to build a reputation of 
uh, change makers, activists, people doing something different, people coming together to do the thing that they can't do on their own um, and that they can't quite do yet as a collective. And that always fascinated me, you know, the kind of core of human development is putting ourselves in positions where we look at the people to the person to the right and the left of us and kind of jump into that breach together and try to do something that we don't quite know how to do yet. So yeah, it took me a while to finally decide that the second season of my career was not going to be spent again, trying to make these very tiny, uh, tiny moves in big organizations. And, um, and I, uh, I, in 2015, I started making the connections and came to, went to an Inspiral retreat, brought my husband along just to, to make sure that he had the final validation that this wasn't some sort of weird cult and uh, jumped in uh, feet first. And the amazing thing for me is to have this practice field where uh, every single day we are actually doing the do. The efficacy that that brings me in my work out there in the world, helping leaders and organizations that want to experiment with more participatory uh, ways of organizing would not be possible um, without, you know, the opportunity to practice that every day and in spiral. Now, to, to the untrained ear, it would sound like, oh, okay, so here's this corporate executive who found out the Inspiral thing, and now she's going around teaching companies how to be like holocratic organizations. And that's really not what you're talking about, is it? No, not at all. So what is it that, I mean, it's hard to generalize because, and that's, that's, that's a real trap of mine too, because every company's different. But uh, what, do you, what do you see if you get called in by a company that's dysfunctional in one way or another? I mean, what do you see as the, as the process and the goal? So, so one thing, one thing I just want to make clear is that I'm not trying to sell anything and the organizations that, um, that call me are really leaders who know with every molecule in their being that they want their organization to be different. You know, it's very, very contentious opinion that I hold that, uh, an organization can really only fully evolve or the potential lies within the the, the, I guess the aspirations of the, of the leadership. That doesn't mean that every human in the organization can't be different with their work. But that's what I'm finding is that leaders are, probably desperate is too strong of a word, but they sense that they've reached a level of consciousness that says, I don't want to leave and retire with this pyramid stuck up my backside and put somebody else on top of the pyramid when I leave. Something can be different, and we need to unlearn and create the conditions for how do we participate together? How do we actually build this thing together? How do we create a company where everybody that's involved wears at least two hats? One of one hat is the hat that they wear to, you know, do their do their work and do their job, and the other hat is a hat about building this thing together, and. You know, from a cultural perspective, that is a complete mind shift. And we don't have the tools to do that, right? From the, our first day at school, sit down, be quiet, do your own work, don't share, leave quietly. Business schools, um, there, there, there is not a training ground or a training field for working this way. So where do I start? Start, start slowly. Um, start through the invitation. Start through giving everybody who in the organization who's interested in participating um, in the next step the chance to start to figure out what that could mean for them. 
Well, it's a little bit like, it sounds a little bit like uh, almost like open space, you know, where the, the, what's his name, Harrison Owen, I guess, you know, that you just invite people who wants to talk about the, you know, what we want to do with this organization or this company. Yeah, absolutely. And open space is a huge inspiration, not only to me, but in Spiral. And the, the, the thing about open space, which grounds it for me, is the invitation, with the invitation comes responsibility, right? Who wants to take responsibility for having this conversation, crafting this experiment, and stepping into, like I said, stepping into the breach together? I think you're sort of getting close to the crux of why this thing is so hard to explain. And it's because, like, the overall, the theory is actually not that difficult. You know, it's like you give people space, um, the right ideas come forward, you support people to to develop and to grow into leadership and to get get what they think they need to get done done. The challenge is really in the execution and in the practice. And it's like explaining to someone to go to the gym and lift some weights. It just makes sense. But then you actually have to go out there and, and lift the weights and build the muscles and do the sweat. Yeah, but it's also, it's also the where it comes from, though. So I could go into a McDonald's and I can see the uh, uh, manager at the McDonald's using the language that McDonald's has spent, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars getting from psychologists and motivational specialists and all sorts of educational people using the language and speaking to the workers. But I know that he's a script. So it could be the same words, do you know what I mean? But but the intention really isn't there. He wants to make his numbers and follow the rules. You could go to a Trump rally, and I'm sure many of the uh, in spiral-like uh, languages being used to motivate people, but when the, you actually look at the dynamic, what's happening, it's like, okay, people on this level are trying to please people at a level above them because this is a kind of a pyramid they're trying to move up. Or here's a company that has this language, but it really is functioning like a dysfunctional family. And they're leveraging you know, people's uh, unmet family needs to get them to work extra hard. It's something that they may or may not believe in. You know, what you're doing, and, and this is why it was so interesting that Occupy sort of happened at least as I understood it, Occupy kind of exploded at the same time that Inspiral did. And it seemed almost like, not to get too Rupert Sheldrake about this, but like there was something in the morphogenetic field as if we were learning that, oh, wait a minute, maybe we need to start from a place of a new normative behavior. In other words, let's start being differently and then see what new structures and ideas emerge from that. Absolutely, yeah. I think when the when you said we're coming at it from a place or a place to stand, um, that's also that's been a running theme through the community. And I would say the the fundamental difference is the ownership and governance question. And that's something that you know coming into this world, coming into the Inspiral world from a, a corporate marketing background, with a like interest in building some companies to change the world. It wasn't the community uh, pitch that got me, and it wasn't the ownership governance pitch that got me. But as you say, like being a different way and being uh, and co-learning a different way of doing things with another with a community of people, it was the ownership and the governance and what that actually really means that made a huge difference. Because I think that's that's absolutely the principle that has then evolved the structures. And so over the course of the last four or five years and Spiral has 
Well, when it started, there was one owner, and then it sort of became two owners, and then it sort of became a collection of companies. And now there's a real push towards supporting more small, committed, high-trust teams with an ecology of ownership. So some people, like myself, are holding governance across a couple of ventures and actively working across several others. And together, there's like this tight mesh of community. But the structures are trying to enable as much ownership as possible. Because I think you're absolutely right um, that the the words and the language that are coming from the likes of the mouths of uh, McDonald's employees. I mean, I, I when you were when you were describing that, like uh, my empathy level rose really high because you know this is the game. This is what we're taught. This is you can't blame them for using the language, and even at the level of the language, if that if that gives them a slight um, sense of relief or a slight sense of inclusiveness, sure, it's not the same, and sure, it's not enough. But um, you know, at some level, when when this when we start to change our language, it's in the doing and in the practice that we can start having examples in the world for what this really means in practice beyond the words. And I think that the other thing I I just that's very important for me to say is that the thing about Inspiral that's magical to me is that it's not just people like me going out and consulting big organizations on participatory organizing. We have a school and we have climate change activists and we have tool builders and we have accountants. And it's that rich mix of livelihood uh, matching with community and matching with this very clear view of it's the full stack of our development and what could be different in the world that makes Inspiral what it is. And I guess I want to I want to help people understand by sort of through the Occupy uh, comparison. So I, I mean I think some people will look at Inspiral and and kind of condemn it in the same way that they would condemn Occupy by saying, "Well, look, all right, fine. It's nice if you all want to collaborate and cooperate in new ways, and you're all good looking and have nature around you, and they're in New Zealand where everything is nice and fine." <laughs> <laughs> but um, I kind of want to, I do want to talk about um, Occupy a little bit, that it was, I, I feel like it was more than a coincidence. So uh, what, what uh, I guess, Anthony, you wrote about this some in the, in the new book. I mean, what was it about Occupy that, that inspired you? Well, to me, I actually remember it really viscerally because I was working in a marketing job down the road, walking past it on my lunch break um, with some with some people that I used to work with who were like, oh man, why, why don't those people get a job? And I remember this like, oh, I know some of those people uh, thing. To me, the, the thing that inspired me around it was really just a, look, we know, we don't need to know all the answers in order to do something. And we know that what we need to do is structurally different. I think just those two things alone to me, putting those into action, if nothing else, created a something. Um, when I saw directly from Wellington um, some folks show up who were like the most unlikely business development founders you can imagine show up saying, we need to build a general assembly consensus app and we're going to do it completely open source and um, do it do it like Occupy from day one. It was one of those moments for me where I was like, oh yeah, we need to create the nest around people who want to drop in eggs like this 
because this is fundamentally different from how entrepreneurship normally starts. A lot of my income for the last five years has come from coaching entrepreneurs and building capacity for people to think entrepreneurially through various sort of innovation or entrepreneurship programs with universities. Um, and so for me, the, th the, the value of something like Inspiral is that it gives people an opportunity to grow differently and ask different questions about how they might grow their company and build their livelihoods and support teams. And, you know, as those, as, as, as those ideas grow, how they might distribute ownership and, um, and profit and governance and all that stuff. So it's like, where are the labs where we can actually prototype something that creates livelihoods? And um, there, there's a spectrum, obviously, in the community of people who are have more of a trauma or fear around money than others. And I come from the place where I'm like, hell yeah, let's make some money, but let's do it really, let's do it inside structures where when you put it through the pipes, it goes to the right places. Right, that it distributes. But the, the thing that seems, I think, that's most difficult for people to wrap their heads around is the model for collective decision-making that, you know, Inspiral and Lumio and Occupy kind of had, had in common. But I feel like um, you, your network has kind of refined, uh, refined this idea of collective decision-making uh, really more than more than than others have. I mean, for for any of us, I was going to say for the average listener, but what does that even mean for for anybody? When we think about democracy or decision making, it sounds like well, let's just put it to a vote. Who thinks we should do A and who thinks we should do B? You know, if you think about any certainly any you know Lord of the Flies or a science fiction thing, we've landed on this planet. There's 50 of us. You know, some of us think we should go down to the lake and some of us think we should make weapons to fight those things on the hill. All right, you know, let's put it to a vote. And that seems like it's the just thing to do. But what I'm learning by reading your stuff is that that creates half, half the people are going to end up unhappy with, <laughs> with whatever you do. And it seems to be like America is now in this place where half of America is going to be really pissed off no matter what happens in any given election. So what, what's the alternative to this sort of simple form of yes or no voting? I think that, that the, the whole, the con conceptually, the um, idea of proposal-based decision-making has been something that we've been refining and riffing on in its spiral uh, for the last five years. And this is fundamentally different than, uh, you know, having a ballot with a yes or no, zero-sum uh, question or decision. And some of the some of the hypothesis that we have around this is that by using a combination of uh, asynchronous tool-based technology like Lumio, where we've made some decisions around uh, lengths of the process, we've got some sophistication around how we invite people into uh, expressing their opinions or views, and coming from a position where when a, a proposal or an idea for something that we might need to make a decision about or have an agreement on, it never comes in even half-baked. We've got really practiced at starting to uh, kind of float ideas at the time where they're just getting to the point of, you know, their, their sort of initial midwife creation. Because 
in through our practice, we've learned that the input and the uh, refinement of these proposals can come from anybody in the organization any any time. That great ideas are not correlated with tenure or age or necessarily even experience with this particular proposal. And that if we uh, create the conditions for people to have um, the opportunity to participate, even if at the end what they want or what they say isn't what uh, eventuates as something that becomes good enough for now and safe enough to try in the community, uh, we've, be- we've begun to create the, the, the conditions for healthy dissent, for really seeing how um, the attention economy can balance participation and coming to decisions and agreements that are not zero-sum. Right. I want to I want to try to ground it even more for listeners. You know, so there's a lot of ideas embedded in when you say good enough for now or safe enough to try. I feel like there's 10 years of learning in each of those phrases. In other words, when we say something's good enough to try, that's a way different construction than, oh, I think we should do that. I agree that that's going to help. Good enough to try is a really interesting, it's, it's setting the bar really lower than this is going to save the world. And yeah, the other, the other one that I think is really powerful is um, safe to fail. Because if you think about that, um, I, I use that one a lot with new teams forming. It's like, let's, let, what, what is it like when one of us fails and what happens then? And um, you're right that there's 10 years of learning behind some of it, but it's also that groups learn to care about each other and people learn to create stronger connections when they help each other through things like failure. And so if you're sitting around saying, Hey, we're going to try, um, take on the directorship of a co-working space. And then a couple of years later, you have a conversation with a membership crew and it's like, Hey, we need to shut down that co-working space. It failed. Um, and then there's a really honest conversation about, why it failed, and there's no blaming. There's. I told you it was going to fail. I knew it was a bad idea. I voted against it. Exactly, um, and the exactly, exactly that. And I, I think the the nail to me is that it's. You mean I'm not supposed to do that? <laughs> it's well, you could do it, but then there'd be a bunch of people who look at you, and you'd go afterwards, huh? Maybe I was being a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's this softening. Well the, re- well, the reason I would do it, though, because I want to have more authority over the next decision. Listen to me next time and do what I thought. You, you could, right? but then the immune system is also that, oh, man, Doug, Doug really, he's quite aggressive about this stuff. <laughs> Let's filter his voice. But some of that to me is completely structural. Like um, right. there, was a, there was a real tipping point quite early in Inspiral where we had this thing called support crew. And there were five of us who were basically like the nucleus core that were running this, at that time, pretty ragtag, loose group of freelancers and startups that sort of were around. And within the support crew, we realized that we were basically holding all the functions of a managerial team. And we were getting tired and we were getting busy. And it was one of those moments when we were like, should we just bring in more people to the support crew or should we like get some interns or get some like, cause we couldn't pay anyone or should we get some like junior staff? And then there was this aha moment where we all said, no, let's quit. Um, and so what we did was rather than further centralize the power, we split Inspiral out. And that was actually around the time of the formation of Inspiral Foundation, which was 
owned by at the at that time 12 members who said we will step up and steward and hold this inspiral thing together and take the weight off the support crew which was about four or five people and that structural decision then created this like precedent and this whole new way of thinking about it going oh if something's if something needs to happen we need to push it outwards to the members of the community not inwards to the management team and i think that ripple out effect has just affected all of the companies in the network and also as people have shown up and the membership has grown from 12 to 30 almost up to 50 at one point and then sort of consolidated back down like high tide low tide um more and more of those interventions have been made with the same spirit but it came from that that like tiny kernel of a thought which is no no oh too much power centralizing we need to have the leadership to step out and push it out and that means that often the edges are also quite messy and we've learned to live with a bit of messiness at the edges whereas if you wanted to control everything you'd be like ah this is not good when i when i showed up with a branding background it totally like drove me crazy that some people were sending emails without a freaking email signature on the bottom we've got past that hurdle but like there's still messy edges for for everyone does that does that make sense does that help yeah i mean it might help for people to know what what kinds of uh, sort of organizations are inside in spiral now so um the inside outside alongside under on top of is is a <laughs> is a question in itself um at the moment one of the more successful organizations is inspiral dev academy they've um they started as two people uh Joshua and Rowan who said we're going to do technical consulting uh technical recruitment and find developers and help them get better jobs and then they realized there weren't enough developers so they built the school uh with a focus on like uh emotional intelligence training communication skills and opening up the technology industry to more people with a particular focus on diversity and over 3 or 4 years now they've just um they've graduated enough people with into jobs in a short period of time with significantly less debt than going through the uh university education system and having much more of a tight knit uh connection with industry that they've become accredited by the New Zealand government and now sort of have a team of about 20 I think in two campuses um Lumio's growing and um just raised another funding round using their sort of cooperative funding structure that's great and Lumio for people who don't know is basically a, an online version of the general assembly consensus building uh technique I guess from from occupy Mm-hmm. Yeah and then Susan Pepps you can talk to some of the others. Yeah and, and another example is Greater Than so this is a a a company that started off they were they made a proposal to the network to take on the stewardship of co-budget which was our homegrown participatory budgeting tool and have grown out that um sort of um financial edge of uh of um of participation. Um we have got Optimi who was in 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 the early days our internal um operations sort of administration crew and they've spun out now and they're they're becoming a a successful business with companies with the uh, companies and clients outside of the inspiral circle uh inspiral accounting which is now fairground accounting which is accounting for good and um helping social enterprises start to measure things beyond money it's just some examples of the the companies that have uh, sprung right. out of the inspiral garden So these are companies and it seems like they've got uh, kind of two distinguishing features. You know, one is that as companies they operate 
in a a uh, in a more bottom up, innovative, participatory, uh, not completely holocratic, but but uh, uh, a way that offers more autonomy to its members. But then functionally, the impact of each of these companies on the either the industries or the communities where they work is also uh, uh, that sort of horizontal, uh, incremental, iterative, open-minded, voluntary um, style. So you bring that you bring that uh, uh, philosophy and that ethos. Um, you you bring it. Uh, you, you function with it and you bring it to the the organizations or communities that you serve. And then on top of that, I guess because so many people now are interested um, not just in the actual companies and their offerings, but in this underlying process, this underlying approach to doing your own work and and serving these other communities that you've now written this book to sort of share the the recipe for this style of uh, uh, of doing business and and making change, right? Exactly. So, I mean, all of those businesses and all of those projects, they are led and directed by autonomous people. So, there's no sort of inspiral control or consciousness about what those companies do. The ripple outs of those sort of two trends or patterns that you described, I think, are very much because of the culture and the humans that showed up and also the sort of upward spiral of community and support that we've created together because we, we affect and we influence each other's thinking. And so the book was really, it's funny because like part of the reason I showed up to Inspiral, I don't know, six or seven years ago now, was like holding this little candle saying, I want to write books. And it was just slowly, slowly getting stronger over time. And then a couple of years ago, I think we reached a point where we'd learnt enough that we got there was a, a, a bunch of people that were sick of answering the same questions, and we realised that the blog posts aren't really cutting it, and there is a there is enough here to put something together with a bit more structure. So um, actually, January this year, January 2018, Susan, myself, and Natalie, another Inspiral contributor, sat down at Summerfest, which is our um, annual gathering. And somehow a conversation started about, actually, let's just get the book done this year. And so it's been a bit of a flurry of activity. We, we um, ran a crowdfunding campaign in June, uh, which was really interesting to see some great organizations come out of the woodwork who had been sort of interested in this stuff for a while. One in Zurich, one in Russia, um, one in America, a couple in New Zealand. That really surprised us. And so we sort of got the sense that there are people interested in this. And... Um, from sort of July, August, September, October, we've been deep in production mode and um, pre-sales will be going live in the next sort of month or so and then we're going to launch it after that. So, um, And the book is called Better Work Together, which I guess we could take in many different ways, um, that, it's, that you do better work when it's together, but you better also just better work together or, or else. Um, and there's a few others, but... Uh, and and in it you do you tell the stories of the different companies or you share the processes. What's a way to describe what you've done with this book? So part of the part of the challenge was can one person write the Inspiral book? That's like oh maybe probably not. So what what Susan and I have done is acted as producing authors and we've worked with eleven of our very close colleagues um, to who have each written a different essay that speaks to expertise or experience or journey that they've been on through Inspiral. 
Um, and as a summation of that, it covers sort of different people learning about and different thoughts around governance and leadership and decision-making around actually commercially building companies and some of the failures and learnings from that, um, some of the visions for uh, theories of how this sort of way of operating could change the world, and just sort of coupled those essays with some more practical resources and sort of um, reflections and things that people can actually use. And part of our thinking was over the years we've been really lucky and that we've realized there's a bunch of other cousins, brothers and sisters, organizations that are similar to us, different instances and different um, iterations of it, but we want more of them and we want to just see this category of work in the world growing. Um, so one of the fundamental ideas behind the book is can we make this inspirally way of doing stuff as replicable as possible? Understanding that if it took root in New York City or um, Bangalore or Cape Town, it would look very, very different. And we don't want those things to be in spiral. It's not sort of like this giant federation model that will take over the world. But it might look and feel in spirally. And we've seen enough evidence of that now. Susan and I were both at gatherings in Hungary last year and in Spain this year, which was sort of like a network of networks, different communities coming together, totally self-organized, bottom-up. Yeah, well, I mean, it sounds like, you know, what the Catholic Church was describing as subsidiarity or, you know, what later was called uh, 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 anarcho-syndicalism, you know, where where there's uh, just a whole lot of different cottage industries that are uh, networked together and, and interacting with one another. Totally. And so the book is really a, a, a like hopefully a signal that, hey, we can do this um, and others can do it too. And here's a bunch of learnings. And and then in the true spirit of open source, usually when you throw a code base out there, that's where people see all the bugs in it too. So there'll, there'll hopefully be some good challenge and some good like participation and uh, progression as a result. Yeah. And I think it just, re- it just really speaks to what I've been seeing in the field. I mean, I'm traveling about half the time and, you know, been to pretty much all the continents talking about this Inspiral thing and helping organizations. And, you know, my my kind of wish for the book is that it just gives people that are that have this sense that they can't quite describe some hook to start and have the courage to start something and have the have the have that courage and opportunity to reach out to us and say, wow, I've been thinking about this. This is what we've tried. What do you think about this? And reading the book and saying, oh, wow, they've tried this. This is what they've learned. Maybe this uh, can get get us one or two steps ahead because, um, you know, they've already had this experience. I mean, I want to go through some of the main, I guess, principles that that you're sharing in this book. Um, one of them is is we've talked a little bit about is power sharing and trying to imagine uh, either a company, an organization, or even a whole society with no bosses. And well, on the one hand, part of me goes, yay, no bosses, we're all free. Um, <laughs> yeah. But the other part of me, and when I think about people I've worked with, uh, it thinks, I like bosses. I want to not, I mean, there's a whole large part of me that would just love to just write and record my podcast give me a boss and stick me in a room. I'll just do my job. I'll do my work and then tell me where to go and I'll do it there. Where do I talk? What do you want me to write about? I'll write that. I mean, on a certain level, there's a, 
I, I at least, and I think a lot of us have a fantasy to return to some, almost some Montessori school with a nice kindergarten teacher to just tell us what to do and I'll sit and, and build and play. I mean, why... <laughs> Why is no bosses better? Well, I, I think that what you what, what you're saying is absolutely correct. But the key here is consciousness about that decision, right? We are used to being in organizations where coercion, command, authority, um, power over is what we think about when we think of bosses or people telling us what to do, and that instantiates a level of learned helplessness which then um, allows us to kind of drift through life without taking responsibility. So really, this is so much about, Doug, if you want to do that, then express your needs. Find a group of people that you can say, I'm Doug, and what I need is for um, one of you to, to tell me what to do so that I can actually bring my gifts into the world. That level of consciousness is what is possible when we talk about no bosses, when we talk about no hierarchy, of course there's hierarchy. There's always going to be hierarchy. Power exists on so many dimensions. The power of context, the power of age, the power of youth, the power of mm. ideas, right? So it's not some bullshitty fantasy where everybody's equal and it's a utopia. It's really more about radical responsibility, the radical responsibility of being able to ask for what you need. Right. So I, I would say, okay, I as an autonomous being, am willing to surrender my authority over my schedule in return for you finding me great people to speak with every day and deal. You know what I mean? It's, it's, which is very different than, can I please have a podcast on your platform? I'll do what you say if you let me in. Right. Or mommy, 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 can you do this for me? Because, because, because if you, if you make the decision, mom, and it's wrong, then I can blame you and you love me. So you won't <laughs> let me get hurt. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly it. And also, you know, the, where there's a choice, it's a different scenario. So, and I've done this before. It's like, I'm writing this damn book. And then the, uh, the accountability is really like, how are you going to pay your rent while you write that book? And um, and it's not a boss. It's a, it's a, it feels more like a guide. And it's, it's funny because, you know, I've been working on multiple projects and there are projects where I'm sort of the person that's in charge of the funding, um, and leading it and bottom lining it legally on the hook if it fails. Um, so I have to take more of a, a role like, like that would be like a boss or, um, and there are other roles that I play at the same time where I'm totally just showing up and doing what I'm told by somebody else and supporting their project it's about choice and it's about consciously opting in. And as Susan said, if you give people the space, they grow the muscles. Right. And there's also, there's also this sense that the people who are bosses or kings even, that their leadership is, is an agreement. It's a social construction. Now, I always, I always looked at the crown that a king wears as not as, oh, I'm the king, so I get to wear the crown, but that the crown was the signifier that the crown was a way of saying look it's just a person what makes him king is that we're letting him wear that crown you know do you know what i mean it's almost the opposite of uh that person is somehow entitled to this thing it's uh uh, uh it's not real it's a uh it's an agreement among people for someone to to hold the conch as it were mm. totally and uh, there's something weird i think that happens when you when you're consciously involved with creating an agreement and you really see that and you feel that and you're like, oh, we just decided and now that's, that's a thing. 
Um, and it feels very different to like showing up and there being a bunch of laws that don't feel very accessible that you could ever change. Right. And then, you know, the other word that I hear Inspiral use sometime is this idea of ownership as in terms of, you know, ownership of the decisions and accepting responsibility and all for what, what it is that we're doing. I'm, I'm interested in, in the different ways that you've worked on ownership in terms of who owns the company. I mean, the, all of Inspiral's companies are not strictly cooperatives, are they? No, they're not. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's a really interesting point because for, uh, there's multiple theories of change that are you know, being held within the community. And one that I think is probably the strongest is can we, can we do some interesting things with capitalism and that can we just create different ownership structures so that shareholdings and motivation and profit flows are different? And, if, and can those structures be more competitive eventually? And then can we help to shift and nudge this, the bigger system that we're all trying to change? So, I mean, as an example, Inspiral Foundation is a limited liability company in New Zealand, and we chose it to be a company, not a charity, because of the overhead simply with becoming a charity. Um, so the company has a non-profit constitution, which means that if the company generates any revenue or any profit, it has to go back to its social mission, which is um, written in a constitution with a whole bunch of words, but effectively boils down to more support more people to work on stuff that matters. That company is owned one share each by a bunch of members. So it's almost like a cultural, structurally it's like a cooperative, legally it's like a company, culturally it's like a stewardship agreement where that share is really just a token that um, gives you sort of like a cultural standing in the community and a, a sense of individual responsibility to steward and spiral forward. That, that company then doesn't hold shares or ownership in any of the other companies. It's just the cultural vehicle in which all of the activity happens. Um, individual companies within the community, some of them are just like small, director-owned, worker-owned, split-share companies. There are cooperatives. It's all really different. Where it gets challenging is where if you're trying to build a product, how do you bring in outside investment in a fair and equitable way so that the people who are putting in their money are can get a return on their risk without forcing the company into a giant growth trap and mm-hmm. and coercively sort of eventually just punching the founders into a corner and um, replicating all of the same problems. Lumio have done a really, really interesting thing with um, it's sort of getting into legal technicals now, but they've created a redeemable preference share option to be able to have financial investment into a member-owned cooperative. Yeah, there's a whole lot of stuff in there. Another another really interesting thing is around this idea of capped returns. So, you know, you start a project like this book. Mm-hmm. This book is using a capped returns model. So Susan and I and Natalie and a couple of others have put in a lot of unpaid time and labor, and there's a lot of risk in this project. And mm-hmm. rather than us spin up a company with a shareholding and when we sell a bunch of books, we're going we're gonna to make the profit back, we have a really simple agreement where we've sort of allocated a proportion of time which is reflected by money, and there's a capped return on that. And it's the same with all the authors. They've contributed the content with a, no, with a known that if we sell X amount of books, they're going to make some money back, and they're never going to make more than 3X on their time or, or 5X on their time. After that, all the, all the proceeds from the book or the surplus from the book goes to support the Inspiral Foundation. So it's sort of like 
basically giving us the license to try some stuff. Mm. And even within the um, the constructs of normal uh, limited liability companies, we've been doing a lot of experimentations with this idea of livelihood pods. So, so one of the things that we've learned over the years is that the increment of I guess, change and uh, well-being and uh, amplifying our work in the world is in small, smaller, i.e. I. probably less than 12 people, um, high-trust, um, committed uh, groups and teams. And within that, those constructs, we've been experimenting with things like uh, collective livelihoods, um, naming our own salary, uh, uh, um, putting putting all of the collective income into a pot and having negotiations every month as to needs and uh, doing needs based allocation of yes. of profits and money. So so keep keeping the team small, um, working within the confines of uh, I guess legal ownership, but really hacking it from the inside uh, has been something that we've been uh, really interested in, have been learning a lot about over the last couple of years. I've heard livelihood so pods called incorporated families before. It's almost like taking a family structure and wrapping a legal framework around. Right, or a family business structure. where So, so the idea is that you can accept investment without needing to either have a, a home run or an IPO. Uh, that there is, a, ideally, I mean, I guess what you're selling is there's less risk, but, you know, a, a less infinite reward. Although I suppose people can continue to get dividends on something over time, like in a family business. Yeah. And I guess the difference would be that there's no mum and dad in the family. It's everyone sort of deciding how much is going to be spent on groceries together. Right. But it ends up making for a better business. You know, when when uh, even Winco, which is a giant uh, uh, worker-owned version of Walmart in the US, you know, when I, I talk to the shareholders of Walmart that Winco is beating, Walmart's so confused. They're saying, well, look, they pay the workers more. They give the workers shares of the company. They, they you know, have better uh, and more environmental processes. They contribute more to their communities. How could they be beating us? And I always answer, it's because they don't have to deliver 90% of their revenue to you shareholders who are doing nothing. You know, <laughs> it's, your, your model kind of prevents that, uh, uh, that top-heavy extractive uh, phenomenon from from killing uh, potentially uh, you know uh, profitable and sustainable companies. Totally. There's also another layer beneath that, which is like, where would you rather work? <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? And um, you know, we're seeing it more and more, like uh, ch- talent churning through organizations faster and faster. Um, like whole interventions being put into place around how do we keep these people and um, through the force of gig economies and just cultural shifts. People don't sign up for careers anymore. They sign up for a string of projects. So these are the these are the things that businesses need to grapple with. And if if they can't keep their staff, then they're going to bleed out as well. And that's another like I guess strategic strategic thing that I can see becoming more and more relevant. Which is how do you just keep good people around and in spiral in a, in a weird way? Someone was saying recently, you kind of after a while you don't really quit. You just step back. It's not like onboarding or offboarding someone from a company. It's like people step back and create space for other people to do roles for a while, and they step into something else. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting when I look at the uh, when I look at the pictures of of 
you all in New Zealand and Susan holding like a little koala bear or something and 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 everybody's pretty and in nature and sitting around and have nice beards and stuff and long hair and it it on some level it feels like this kind of burning man utopia you know uh, commune or something but uh, when you look at the real burning man out in wherever, you know, in, in the desert, that's like Google at this point, you know, <laughs> Eric Schmidt and, and, and the billionaires are all going there and they've created this kind of scaled, nothing against Burning Man and it's fine to go and have fun, but it's a scaled, uh, uh, almost a, 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 an alternative to a kind of a Disney-esque immersion in a, a, a psychedelic holism for a moment where the, the idea of bringing the core values that may have uh, inspired Burning Man of, uh, you know, mutual aid and everybody contributes and this is participatory and we're going to do no harm um, and, and we're going to experiment in ways that don't violate other people's rights or anything, that there's a, um, uh, well, in, 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 in the way you're working, there's something that's, uh, uh, that, that retrieves the core values that we're talking about, but uh, implements them not in a in a kind of a fanciful uh, uh, virtual entertainment space, but as operating principles for uh, uh, organizations, and not just organizations, but but for governments, for communities. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I I you know nothing bad to say about these event based peak experiences because sometimes it's what um, is needed for mm-hmm. people to have transformative experiences and do what I did and step out of you know crack the shell exactly. But but the difference in Inspiral is we we have have consciously moved from being event based peak experience-based to practice-based. This is bloody hard work. Um, it's not, it's not easier. I, you know, I don't, I don't want anybody to think that, yeah, just because we live in this amazing country at the bottom of the world in the South Pacific, and I get to hold Kiwis, uh, on, on my weekends that, that this is easy stuff. This is really hard, intentional commitment, intellectual, cognitive work. I mean, the challenges are different. The benefits are different, for sure. It's funny though when you take when you only take photos at your at your annual gatherings. It's amazing the projection that that happens. Yeah, <laughs> but there, that's true. But there's people grinding away in London and in Barcelona and in San Francisco, and sometimes they're isolated and it's it's rainy and windy and cold in Wellington today. And um, so oh, good, because. Because, you know, we're stuck here in Queens or whatever, and you see all these pretty people in T-shirts holding hands in a circle around a bonfire, and you think, well, sure, you know, you've got no natural predators in New Zealand, or so I hear. Um, you know, and you're in New Zealand. I mean, do you think that, that partly, I remember Terrence McKenna said that he moved to um, Hawaii in part to be sort of one step removed from the rest of the world, that it gave him kind of the quiet and the space to look at civilization, both, you know, as part of it, but also kind of from the outside of it. I mean, do you feel that there's some advantage to being uh, in, in, I was going to say a place like New Zealand, but I don't know if there are any other places like New Zealand, uh, Madagascar maybe, um, uh, uh, at least ge- ge- geographically, but uh, is there is there some some special advantage, do you think, to being uh, slightly, slightly remote from the rest of 
uh, Western civilization? I think it was a, it was useful for us to start here. Like Wellington, as the capital city of New Zealand, has 150,000 people in it. It's pretty much a village. You can walk around. Um, when Inspiral was starting, it was so easy to organize a meeting because you could just walk 10 minutes and you'd find somebody. Um, so I think in that context, it was really helpful, the geography and the, the culture here, where if you needed to get in touch with the CEO, you could probably know someone who knows them. Yeah, the overall power distance in New Zealand is, has been a, a distinct advantage. But I think now, like most of the interest comes from overseas and most of the work feels like it's overseas. So, and it's for me, it's really weird. Like I flew literally across the world um, in June to Europe and um, went to Barcelona and felt completely at home and it felt exactly the same. So I think the there's nothing special about New Zealand in that context at all. Um, the work is everywhere and the people are everywhere and we're still uh, slowly starting to become more and more aware of that. Uh, but totally, to start off, it was a nice little, nice little nest to grow from. If there's this other phenomenon. I've been talking a lot about it on, on the show because uh, – and they're all well-meaning, but a lot of the guests I have on have this sort of master plan idea for the world. You know, like, oh, we've got these blueprints that are replicable for an eco farm that can be scaled up and is the, you know, these kind of giant, what what ultimately become one-size-fits-all solutions, well-meaning ones out of great West Coast, you know, think tanks or, uh, or European movements or whatever for this is the way to do agriculture. Uh, it's just a matter of scaling it up. That, that. It, it sort of betrays a, an industrial age mindset around social change. And, and you all seem like you're, you're constructing it from the opposite place, that you're doing social change in this sort of tiny way that, that can ultimately have, have you know, system-wide effects. I, yeah, I think, I mean, I've got a very strong theory that, that frameworks um, don't work um, because interventions, um, opportunities are manifest from the people that are in the room at the time and considering their worldviews and their experience and what they're trying to do together. Um, the, the, the biggest I can um, go is to look at it like scaffolding. So um, if we can be the uh, tenders of the scaffold and maybe um, I've got a saw and Ansa's got a hammer and Doug, you make everybody cups of tea, um, and we know that what is going to emerge from the center is going to be unique to every single situation. I think that that really um, kind of um, is, is where our perspective is in terms of having assumptions or opinions about knowing what's right. We don't know what's right. We're, we're constantly experimenting in the middle with what we can see, where we are, the people who are around, and, and you know, what we can do. There is, there is visions and opinionation, though. Like, I mean, one of the things for me is I look at the UN and I'm like, okay, here's this, like, massive conscious top-down force of interconnected countries that's trying to solve all these complex problems. And, like, I think everyone knows in their heart of hearts um, we're going to need more than that. And so I'm like, all right, well, what if we flip that upside down and create a conscious, resourced force that isn't 40,000 people working in a top-down structure, um, and it's 
the same amount of people working in a bottom-up self-governing structure, and that's 200 collectives of 200 people to have the same amount of people power as the UN, but be bottom-up. And in spirals, sort of like swarming, and depending on how you cut the numbers, we're somewhere between 300 and 100 people. So you could say that we're getting close, I'd say, to having some structures that we could replicate that could hold 200 people. So we might be able to contribute to being one of those. And if we can create 200 others and consciously resource and network them together, what might they achieve? Um, Like, I have no idea at all. (laughs) But there's like a vision there or a direction there. And if you ask other folks in the community, they'll have their own visions. I know Lumio's one of their initial, like, let's do something big, was like, how do we be bigger than email? Like, imagine if more people were in Lumio groups making decisions than they were sending email. (laughs) So there are some grand ambitions as well as a healthy sense of we have no idea what we're doing. Right, but there's a sense, I mean, in speaking with you, I, I, uh, uh, no matter what happens in our elections, uh, I have a sense of hope that there's another... um, and this may be beyond what, you, what you're prepared to talk about, but I feel like there's another form of democracy that's bubbling up from the work you do that could potentially migrate to, you know, our kind of global political or national political systems. Um, do, you, do you have some sense that there's, that there's still time for us kind of more geopolitically to engage with each other in the ways that that Inspiral organizations are working? I think there's definitely people that are chewing that stick and can see that same sense. Um, Transnational collectives or um, these sort of things, these ideas have popped up before. Um, I think the closest, the closest, uh, the thing that's closest to us now is changing your own individual relationship to governance can change how you interact with your community, with your city, with your country. And if you imagine, like, if we can create stronger, healthier communities that where you have a governance say, that might change the, the needs of the mental health system for the, lo- the national government. And there might be ripple-out effects like that, that that we can see happen quite quickly if, if these things take root. But at the bigger picture level, like a networked um, community of or a networked tribe of communities that are joining forces and creating currencies and maybe having their own taxation systems like sure why not but i think at the moment the the, those things are things that people make in fancy renders and big top down top top down sketches and visions but i mean i I would hope that stuff like that emerges and spirals come out of feels to me like it's come out of nowhere in eight years and if that's the start of a curve that keeps growing i'd be really curious about what happens in the next sort of 20, 30, 40 years. One thing that's for sure is that there's a, there's a core of people that are saying, well, this is the first 50 years of what's a much longer project. And there is that level of commitment to it. So I think that in itself is fundamentally interesting because you don't get that in a normal company. I mean, thanks so much for, uh, for, for doing this, for what you do and for, and for sharing it. I mean, hopefully this book will be uh, 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 successful and for me successful means good propaganda for the methodologies that you're talking about thanks Thanks so much doug it's um it's really great to have your support means a lot thanks for joining team human our guests today were susan basterfield and anthony cabral editors of inspiral foundation's new book better work together 
You can find out more about the book at betterworktogether.com. You can support Team Human and even get a copy of my upcoming book, Team Human, by subscribing to our show. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support. You can also read my columns based on the show's monologues at medium.com slash at Rushkoff. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens next week with new strategies for intervention in the machine. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.